Welcome. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so pleased to have Terrence Hayes here in the studio. Um, welcome, Terrence. Good to be here. Thanks. <laughs> well, we're taping this on the 15th of November, 2012. Terrence, you're in town doing um, reading, meeting with students, um, all sorts of wonderful things. Um, and thanks for being on Living Writers yeah, today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Do you do a lot of radio usually, uh, or what's uh, occasionally? Do you have a history always, with radio? <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'm out there somewhere in in cyberspace. I don't I don't typically get to listen to them after they're done, but I've done a few of, over the years. Like after the whiting or some, you right. know, with the awards or, or with book releases. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I mean we don't have, I don't know how quickly you should get into stories, but I remember. Let's go. I remember <laughs> uh, writing a poem that I didn't show my wife, who is a uh, also a poet. And then I was asked to come do a uh, a radio reading of the poem, and she came with me. And I was like, "Oh, you and the rest of America are about to hear this very strange poem." So, uh, so that's my distinct memory of like a kind of moment when the radio was a, really a sense of like, "Oh, there's a public audience for this thing." Mm-hmm. I didn't ask her if this poem was okay, you know? Yeah. So, Wait, did, did it turn out all right? Oh What's yeah. The end it was of the, fine. Was it, it was okay? Fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which poem was it, Terrence? Uh, Cocktails with Orpheus. Oh. You are such a great, you're a title maestro. Um, uh-huh. Before we go any further, because I'll get carried away with the conversation here, um, I'll read, oh, we've got two of Terrence's books. We've got Lighthead um, and Wind in a Box, both with peng- Penguin Poets. Such great, what nice books. Like just the artifact of the book. Beautiful, sure, beautiful books. Um, Terrence Hayes, most recently recent poetry collection wind in a box penguin 2006 was named one of the best 100 books of 2006 by publishers weekly his other books of poetry are hip logic penguin 2002 which won the national poetry series open competition and was a finalist for the los angeles times book award and muscular music carnegie mellon university press 2005 uh, tia chucha press 1999 which won the kate tufts discovery award his honors include a Pushcart Prize, three Best American Poetry Selections, a Whiting Writers Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He is a professor of creative writing at Carnegie Mellon University and lives with his family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I like your author photo, uh, Terrence. Thanks. My wife took that. She did? Yes. Should we give a shout out now? Yona. Yes. My <laughs> wife, Yona, who's also a writer. Also the, a poet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, do you, are you guys each other's first readers um, for your poems? Or? First listeners. You know, I think in the early years we did more conscientious workshops. But at this point, I could just bring a poem in and then let her hear it. And she can have a sense of keep going. Yes. Or stop there. Or throw it away. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. So it's a pretty, you know, it, it happens over, you know, 15 years of hearing each other's work. She's got a pretty quick sense of what I'm doing, but not so much so that she has to, like, get into the poem and edit it. Like, you know, we can figure it out. But I do know sometimes just by even a silence, like, hmm, and I think, okay, let me go back to my office. Yeah, yeah just how those silences work yeah. in poems. Yeah, they all, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Oh uh, well, well. Thanks for being here today, Terrence, and sure. and and reading. So this bio, um, uh, the the bio is actually it's wonderful because you're chock full of awards, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So. Yes, uh, <laughs> Thank that's you. Uh, yeah. wonderful. And but maybe we can fill in a little bit about your 
you know, you were born in Columbia, South Carolina, that's right? right? That's right. And, and when did you start? When did you know that you had a passion for poems? Um, well, early on, you know, it was more that people told me that I had a passion rather than me understanding it. It would be, you know, the analogy I use is like eating food. No one necessarily thinks they have a talent for food. There may just be food that they like. And then suddenly you discover one day that you could have a living just eating food. (laughs) So that's sort of how poetry emerged for me. It was a thing that I always enjoyed. Uh, But, you know, my dad was in the military. My mother was a prison guard. And so there was no kind of literary environment. There weren't that many books. They knew that I liked books, but they... It, it was so foreign that no one ever said, you shouldn't be reading those books. You know what I mean? They just sort of, they didn't encourage me, but they also didn't discourage me because they, it just didn't register. But so, I, but I played basketball, I painted, and everyone knew that. Like, I right. do the covers for the book. So they weren't, that was enough. They thought, they knew I was strange because I was interested in art. But again, no discouragement. Uh, and then I did that in college i i is that also terrence was that um when you said because i love how you sort of skated by that like they knew i was strange because i painted or i was interested in art right and so and this was it because um like the town like the other like the was it just the family or what did you feel like it was even your school where you went to like your identity was on the basketball court in a lot of ways with your good friends well as a visual artist everybody was cool with that so i did the t-shirts and i did murals the last time i went to to visit my school to give a sort of assembly talk there were still murals that i'd done so they were you know big things they could be gone now but so everyone was very uh, encouraging. But, you know, it's a very different thing. Like, I think everyone has a capacity for looking at a piece of art and seeing its value. So because, you know, people could see that I was a good artist, quote unquote, there was no real problem with it. And then I played sports. But, you know, with poetry, it's a very different sort of phenomenon. Or people feel outside of it. They do. Sometimes and I a little think. bit sort of intimidated by it. So it wasn't anything that I really discussed with anyone but my English teachers in high school sort of knew yeah that I could do it and and just generally write and they sort of understood it but again it wasn't like this is what you should do it was just like hey you're gonna always make A's in English um and in college I had a really close professor and he was the first person you know it's in the south he raised horses his name was Jack French he had been one of what a great name yeah JFK's speech writers uh in the 60s and he was only in the south because he had horses um, so really eccentric, really interesting guy and all the sorts of cliches about, you know, uh, your eccentric professor, but we definitely, so he was, you know, he did not suffer fools, but we got along quite well. And so, uh, he was the person who was like, you know, you can do this, you know, this, you're good at this. And I also had a very close art professor. And so there was, a, there were very different, you know, different sensibilities. And ultimately I just thought. As things wound down, um, it was like, go overseas and play basketball, go and try to be a painter, or try this writing thing that you've never tried and that no one really knows that you do. So how did you know what to do? uh, I could not afford to be a painter because it's oils, and I just felt like there was it was going to be very difficult for me to maintain the materials and do what I wanted to do. Uh, But basketball, I just thought I'd done enough of it, and I... You know, I, I, at the time, I didn't have, like, that great of a relationship with my coach. You know, I, I enjoyed playing basketball, but I sort of thought, like, if I didn't do it, it would, like, surprise him. That, and that's what I did. I just said, you know what, I'm not going to go, you know, play basketball. I'm going to go do poetry. 
So and so the person that so I so you almost did it a little bit like yeah. just to be a slightly shocking like right. wake which someone I, out of there <laughs> which I should not have done when I th- as I've gotten older I think man I should have gone over because it wouldn't have been for that long you know it was just like uh, at that level in basketball it wasn't like D one it was D two so I maybe would have gone over for a year you know or two it wouldn't have been a career necessarily but it would have been an opportunity to do something so but at the time I just thought no I'm not going to do this you know but uh but maybe that helped you see this idea of like what poems could mean to you sure, in sure. more in a clarity yeah inevitably it did but essentially i just didn't even know what i mean you know the side note to that about like a sort of jock identity which i did have was that i had a friend who played for the steelers he had, he was a year older than me older than me in high school and so he had been drafted by the steelers so i really thought when I had to decide where I was going to go study poetry, yes. I thought, oh, Pittsburgh, because Willie's in Pittsburgh, you know. So it wasn't that I thought, oh, this, I mean, I met a really wonderful professor who was recently here in Michigan, uh, Toy Derrick. Yes, yes. So she Friend was of there. the show. That's right. And <laughs> I knew that she was there, and that was important. But I also knew that when I got there, I could hang out with the Steelers. Because this guy and I, we played sports together, we ran track together, we played basketball together. So I really thought... You know, we're friends. We lived in the same What's neighborhood. What's his first name? Willie Williams. Oh, Willie Williams. Okay. Of course, nice. when I got to Pittsburgh and I called him, he was like, yeah, yeah, we'll hang out. But it became very clear that we were, I was a graduate student. And, and you, he was an NFL football player. <laughs> Different circles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't have to be. That's, right. That's well, what you were trying to show. Yes, but him. I think from his position, like, no. So I, I saw a few games, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. It wasn't going to be what it I thought it was. It wasn't best friends. Right. And that was fine. I mean, I actually did sort of find my way into the poetry community, but it was all brand new. I mean, again, I still was identifying as a visual artist and as a basketball player, and to suddenly be a poet in a poetry space was very new. But so that did you also... just go, Terrence, I'm sorry, did you just go right from undergrad yes, then yes. to graduate school? Yeah, no like year spring off? Spring to just... fall, yeah. Okay. So, and, that, and it was, again, it was brand new to me. Most of the people in the class had had creative writing classes. I had had one intro to writing class as a, like a sophomore so no poetry workshops just my own sort of really strange interest in it and and that worked out for me and I mean, did you have people that you loved like poets that you loved as well like had you read uh, Toy Derricotte or had you read like I, I read mean who, Walt Whitman upon or, meeting or her but you, yeah. everything that was in you know the Norton anthology of poetry I knew okay. so there were uh, and I'd met poets when they would visit people who did what I'm doing now mm-hmm. a few when they would come to my campus, I would always be the person who would get to hang out and ask them questions, and I would learn about contemporary poetry that way. And, you know, but the joke that we had when I played basketball on away games is that the my uh, teammates would grab their their uh, anthologies, whatever they were doing in their English classes, and they would read like a sentence, and then I could tell them what book it was and what the poet was, I mean, what the author was, which was not that hard. It would be like Faulkner, you know. But to them, that was a big deal. <laughs> But it was just like I had read the books because those were my books. I'd read them enough that I just knew, oh, that's William Faulkner or Rose from Emily, you know. And yeah. Then, oh, that's Two Autumn by John Keats, you know. But I knew it because to me it was – I just only had a little bit of stuff to really go through. It wasn't because I had this wealth of knowledge in terms of, like, the literary canon. Well, but if that you're just reeling those off, it does mm-hmm. – It do, you, you do – you did have a wealth of knowledge. Not only did it sort of – make you a curiosity amongst your team your friends but i mean that really shows some sort of um like you were already connecting on it and such a deep you absorbed it instantly sure sure sure. so but it was it was a good parlor trick but i did yes i I did know i did know the work but what that meant when i got to 
Pittsburgh is that I just decided I was going to read everything in the poetry section of the library, which I really did try to do. I mean, I just went constantly and was just reading. Anytime somebody said something about a book, I would go and read it. I would find books, like I would go to the H's looking for Linda Hall. She wouldn't be there, but then next week I'd be in the L's and then there would be Linda Hall in the wrong place. That happened many times. I had just gone through, and it was a very good contemporary poetry section, but over the course of my time in the program, that's pretty much where I spent my energy. So, I mean, I was social. I hung out with people, but definitely... I, when things were brought up, I'd read it. So when someone would say, does anybody know, I don't know, Billy Collins? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, The Art of Drowning. And then I could recite the poem or a section of the poem. But it was because I, I was so uh, hyper paranoid about not being as prepared as everyone else because I had not been reading it in undergrad. And they did know. They had a sense of contemporary poetry. But I just decided I was going to know everything that they knew. And then... And eclipse and, it. And whatever else I encountered learning what they knew, I was going to know that too. So, Do you think coming in, um, was the workshop sort of a, a shock then for yeah, you? Or? Yeah, and it still is. is I mean, it? I teach the workshop by trying to talk about how we can work against it. Because I do think yes. some of the, my ignorance and... Uh, some of my skepticism about what people can do for you at the table was was healthy, you know. And so I do try to teach that to my students. Like, oh, you know, you can't trust everything everybody says. There's always these other dynamics at work, which are not just about the work. So. Yes. Or you, they might have other ideas floating in their head that you try to attach into, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the poem. Absolutely. Or Richard Hugo's so. Triggering Town, right? Yeah, Where yeah. he says, I'm going to try to not mm-hmm. to do this, but I'm going to try to tell you how to write it like I'd write it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, so, and that was good. I mean, it was all very healthy and my experience was a, was a good one. But there are certain certain kinds of modes of thinking that I entered into, you know, graduate school with. And I try to still sort of stay close to that, a sense of like, I don't, a sense of like not knowing enough is always healthy, you know? So I still try to encourage that. Like you should never show up thinking, you know, all you need to know. You should show up saying, I don't know as much, you know, there's uh Ralph Ellison talks about that in his little, the man in Chiha station, you know, the little man in Chiha station. He just essentially says, no matter what audience you're before, you should always assume there are people in the audience that know more than you do. And that just creates a different sort of pressure for you or a different sort of uh, relationship to the audience. If you don't go in saying, I know this stuff and I'm going to tell it to you. So and he's I think he's probably right. I, yeah, mean, I, I found think it any, to be true. Yes. <laughs> any random audience, you know, any 20 people in a the room, there will be people who know more than you do. So but, you know, what that means for me is then I always think I'm the person in the audience who knows who has read more than everybody else. And I just work from that. I work to sort of build on that, you know, that idea that. Nobody in here has read more poetry than I have. Terrence Hayes, I would put my money on that right now. I bet Gus would, too, <laughs> sitting behind the glass engineering uh, for us today. Yeah. Let's, we'll take but, a short break, sure. and we'll come right back okay. today on the program. Terrence Hayes is here. Um, we'll also be hearing poems from his, his latest collection, Lighthead. And we've got Wind in a Box on the table, both with Penguin Poets. You've got living writers. Terrence Hayes today will be back. <laughs> Hope there's someone who'll take care of me When I die, will I go? Hope there's someone who'll set my heart free Nice to hold when I'm tired There's a ghost on the Good 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm glad you did. Um, today on Living Writers, Terrence Hayes is here. Um, Terrence, you've got Lighthead in your in your hands. Yes. You actually were saying this book almost had very like a different title, right? Um, how did you pick? Well, yeah, what happens? How do you know? Because you are um, you are great at titling uh, things. We'll talk about that that's later. Funny. But <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know where titles come from. Um, I often will enter into a piece, as with the book, I often enter in with an idea for an individual poem even, that, oh, this is what this title is going to be. And it very rarely works out that way. Um, it doesn't keep the name. No, the no, okay. it, you know, because you don't really know what's going to happen with the poems. So I just, I love this uh, sort of dubstep. Actually, he's the father of contemporary dubstep, I would say. This uh, Burial is his name. He's, uh, you know, a UK artist. For a long time, no one knew who he was. Um, and now you can hear his influence in someone like James Blake or even Weekend. You know, there's a lot of guys who... Anyway, so he has great titles, is what I would say. So one of his... The titles of one of his pieces was uh, like Ghost Hardware. Uh, another one was Etched Headplate. So from, het- from Etched Headplate, I got to Scorched Headplate. And then from Scorched Headplate, I got to Lighthead, which is like a head on fire, you know, is Scorched. And then Borges, Borges quotes mm-hmm. begins the book. Right, with the which eye. is also about fire, yeah. And so fire is a primary image through the book. Uh, and then what's, what I really was enchanted by with the notion of lighthead is that, you know, it's like lightheaded, it's sort of off your feet, it's sort of a uh, dream image, but also it's like, you know, you have been lent, you're on fire. It's also passion. So there's a lot of ways of what does it mean to be, you know, have a light in your head. And, um, and how with the now that you've titled it and now mm-hmm. to know that you've also I should have made the connection mm-hmm. earlier painted um, the paintings that are on the, co- the or mm-hmm. the painting that's on the cover and then mm-hmm. repli- replicated six times. Right. Is that's it? right. So and what is it? What's the title of this painting? Uh, I think it's just head. I mean, you know, it's okay. funny. Uh, a lot of my paintings just have fairly simple titles. I mean, the funny thing about the visual arts is that the pressure for titling it is just not the same i would never tolerate i have not tolerated like students who say oh it's just untitled and i say that's like having a baby and not giving it a <laughs> right. name but with my paintings though i i, I keep them fairly it feels simple. really different. yeah you know i don't really go into very ornate titles so i probably just head or something this was just a woodcut i don't think i ever titled that one unwind in a it's, box yeah, it's just a sliver slither of a of a woodcut sliver of a woodcut um so the music that transitioned us into this has actually a, just another reference of Lighthead. You know, sometimes the idea will show up. The interesting thing about putting books together, um, what I really love in a in a title is, in fact, if it can kind of resonate in a lot of different ways. So that, for example, in Wind in a Box, I think of that in one sense of just like what poetry is. You know, there's a structure that is a box and then the breath mm-hmm. that makes poetry goes down into it and it floats around and it does its own thing. But it is contained. It does have a shape. But it's also breath, you know, like the body is a kind of box. My yes. body is a cage. I think that's arcade fire. And then the wind is sort of moving through the body. So I And you've actually it. been able to parse out their lyrics. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> what they're saying. But well, you know that one. Yeah. My body is a cage. That's a good one. So, you know, so with this one, too, I was 
interested in the different ways that Lighthead becomes a real thing. Yeah. So in this poem, which is a riff on uh, Anthony and the Johnsons who transitioned in, it's both thinking about him uh, and really just thinking about marriage. But a lot of times, you know, the poems just grow out of a, a, a desire to engage uh, something. So in some ways, Lighthead just grows out of a desire to engage burial and, you know, etched head plate. But whether that's on the surface for all of my readers is sort of not as important to me as it being a way to generate the poem. So here, I'll read this one. And it sort of says what I'm going to say if you were here when the music came in is that what I think is so intriguing about Anthony is the way he sounds like Nina Simone. He sounds like a white dude a cross-dresser singing like <laughs> Nina Simone and that's essentially what he is. He's like a kind of Boy George. He's done some duets with Boy George. So he interests me both in terms of like he's sort of androgynous, he's got this really sort of ethereal voice, um, a lot of desire. Um, so that as a figure intrigued me even though as I said the poem itself goes somewhere else. I am a bird now. When Antony, a man like Nina with a shook note cornered in his quiver, dolls a wig of light the way a wounded head is dolled. And the song slung from his grimace is no longer part of the body, but shares some of its history. You know how I feel. The raw drawl drawn from the bottom of the throat. The hunger broken by what can and cannot heal in the much too dark to see. After the vase is asleep with the taste of the bit flower, its moodiness and lust, you know how I feel. Submerged in a clouded jar, altered and alert. The mind, light-headed and hot, run down and cloaked in awkwardness. You know what I sorrow when I lay on your back, beloved, and our lovemaking with your back to me is a form of departure. You know how I feel, terrestrial as a marriage, like a wing when it is no longer part of the body, slung from a horn carved of metal, slickened to shine a phrase winding coil, and the winded valves, the song which aches as it opens and aches as it shutters down. So, uh, you know, I, you know, the poem can't be reduced to a kind of aboutness, but it has, you know, it's sort of playing around with like the moods of a, I would say even a long marriage or the sort of lines between, you know, being alert and also feeling uh, altered or being awkward also and also feeling, you know, sort of lightheaded in the midst of a kind of relationship. So. Uh, and then underneath that, I mean, again, this is what always what I like about the process of writing poems or how the language of poetry is different from other kinds of languages. There's always like these other floors. There's kind of a basement. You can just enter the living room of a poem. But <laughs> right. then there's an attic in the poem and there's a basement. There's a backyard and a front yard. For me, as a, my encounter with readers and with an audience, it's just like, oh, if you could just get in the living room and have something happen, I'm good. <laughs> you don't have to know what's in my basement. But in this poem, like the basement of the poem is really playing with all of these different versions of Nina Simone. So it starts with Antony, but I'm also thinking, you know, birds flying high, you know how I feel. So that's her singing, feeling good, but it's birds. So it's, I feel like a bird now. 
And at the end with the horn slicking to shine, that's like bird, you know, covering, feeling good, Charlie Parker. So there's all these other things that are happening in the poem, which are exciting for me in generating the poem, but not so much so that they have to sort of dictate one's understanding of the sort of like initial floor of the poem, I, I would say. Because it works with, like, it's evo- it's evoking. Right. So it's yeah, already, yeah. that can be also the living room. Sure, even sure. Even if you're not picking up all of the connections. Yeah, yeah. But when I think about what governs the sort of mood of a poem, like, you can really get down to mood. It is, as I said, it's a kind of a love poem, a kind of elegiac love poem. But that doesn't necessarily speak explicitly to Anthony and the Johnsons or Nina Simone or anyone. But it does drive a feeling for the the way the poem sort of evokes a kind of mood. And can you, I don't know if you can remember exactly, because thank you so much. It's so lovely to hear um, you talk about like the... uh, the parts of the house sure, or the layers sure. of it. Um, how did this poem um, could like could you even walk us through um, birth like the birth of it? Like it's oh, or that's just, so interesting. I was talking to uh, graduate students earlier, and what I said was, well, one of the ways that people talk about my work, and in fact, uh, when uh, Professor Van Jordan introduced me for this this group of students, I was talking to, he said, "Oh, every book is different. He's always pushing himself." And what I said to the students was like, it's not different because I'm trying to be different. I mean, it's different because I always forget what I did as soon as I (laughs) do it. And that would be true for most of my process uh, is new. Every poem feels like a new poem. Every last poem feels like the last poem I'll ever write, which is to say I really have no idea where that poem how it came together, even though I know that it's rooted. I mean, when you think about like titles, some of the things that you want to help, they're almost like dates. Like, okay, well, if I title it, I'm a bird now, I will always remember (laughs) that he had something to do with the genesis for the poem, even if the poem is sort of moving right by him as a kind of clear subject. So I don't know. Most of my poems, when I look at them, I have no idea when they were done. Because, you know, once you've written, once you get into like, you know, draft 30, You sort of lose track of what happened. And then one day you're just done. One day you look and say, okay, this is it. But I I really never know because whenever I'm writing, I sort of always go at it like this is it. This is going to be the poem. So who knows where that thing came from? (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of like uh, uh, Gus had shown me this Poets on Poetry, the P.O.P. Uh that you did, God is America. Oh, sure. Yeah. um, what a great delivery to Terrence and, um, and this moment in there where you say the moorings um, mm-hmm. and, and I almost feel like that's such a authentic ex- genuine experience sure. to you because even as you're saying that um, there's a level of the poem that's then moving by itself right, in the right. poem that there's a, a one like maybe a grappling hook or a sure. mooring of sorts as it moves forward in a new way sure sure yeah and that you know that is the joy of i think making art and there's always that tension between and i i really feel this tension between one's own pleasure it's sort of like uh to use the food metaphor again a sense of like eating and then a sense of feeding people so you don't necessarily want your audience just to watch you enjoy your food which is how some think of poetry as being very self-absorbed, confessional, oh. and very interior, and not necessarily about engagement. But then, you know, the other side of that, there are people who think that poetry is all about them. So, you know, maybe you think about that as a certain kind of political poetry where when people say, I don't actually care if you eat at all. You just need to feed us the fire, feed us the wisdom, feed us the initiative, and then we'll go. 
And so I don't rest fully in either one of those camps, but I do think there is a negotiation where we're like sort of eating together. And then I say, oh, that tastes pretty good. Well, how do you think that tastes? You know, and you say, oh, I don't like it. And I think, well, I like it. I'm going to keep it in. You know, it's that kind of relationship of making a meal and then sharing it with someone who's interested in like eating it, but not so much because they want to critique you or because they sometimes don't even want to get fed. They just want to share you know, a kind of like experience. Experience. Yeah. yeah. So, and that puts you in both camps. It does give you the responsibility of knowing that people are going to try to consume what you've made, but it also makes you aware that, you know, I also, I have to eat too. Like this is also providing some, some nutrients for me. It's not all about you audience or reader. It is also about me trying to like, you know, feed myself. And make, so. or cause you get the compulsion to make something yeah, too. Yeah. That would, that's it is. I've never. I've actually not heard someone say it that way. That sure. makes a lot of sense, Terrence. Sure. Um, let's take a short break, um, and then we'll be back. You're listening to WCBN <laughs> FM Ann Arbor Living Writers today on the program. Program Terrence Hayes is here. I'm T Hetzel. We'll we'll be right back. Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Terrence Hayes is here. His book on the table, Lighthead, and also Wind in a Box. I'm so glad you also were talking about the container, Terrence, mm-hmm. and, and breath, and um, the poem um, being a container sure. for these words. I love that. That's. Um, I used to think about that with um, uh, poems as museums. Yeah, sure. And, and yeah, that yeah. there's these mm-hmm. different rooms and how it's working. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's... Um, Yes. Yeah, there are spaces that you can enter into and spaces that you put, you know, put stuff into. So uh, they I mean, I think that allows for a degree of surprise. I mean, I, you know, when you think about what it means to be a teacher, um, for me, it's really not about narrowing people's sense of experience or narrow, which is what expertise is seen as sometimes. Like, oh, if you just give them a very particular expert answer then they don't have to have the clutter of all the other possibilities and I sort of think in particular with art and with poetry it's just the opposite I'm often thinking I wanted to sort of open up and to broaden their sense of like what language can be or what a poem can be it can rhyme but it also can do like a million other things so that's my attitude generally as I move into my own poems like okay I know I am in a room but you know I can sleep I can dance you know you just <laughs> want to feel like once you're in the space that the poem is sort of uh, offer you that then your sort of imagination can really take off. So, and you, and you have you come up with these ideas that that you work with, like the um, in Wind in a Box you have the letters to MJ, right, mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. then and then also the Wind in a Box poems and and the and the the blues, sure. like even to right. Doctor Seuss, like right. Blue Seuss, or so. And so, how um, do you find that it's just something that you 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 start doing? And it's not like it's a. I don't mean it lightly. Like mm-hmm. it's a game. But right. there's something where you're working with the language, and so then it becomes maybe a series of right. po- art. No, this is true. I mean, they all begin as just ways to write, really, just like something to do. Essentially, if I were to say, well, I'm fairly 
obsessive, compulsive, just about, you know, poems and a few other things, but poems in particular. So I'm just a person, you know, it's like a dog, just like, can we play this game? Can we play this game? You know, just give me anything, throw a ball, throw a bone. And so it's that kind of idea of just looking for opportunities to sort of just write. So whenever I can find uh, a way into a poem, of late it's just been like the long poem. Like I love the idea that, you know, when I go to write, I have a long poem. That gets to be a problem when you're like into 30 pages. So I'm sort of coming to terms with that now. But in general, that's how Is that the new work then, Terrence? Is that... Right. The more recent work is, you know, just longer poems in general. Did you bring some of that with you? Uh, No, Mm -hmm. I did not. But I'll, you know, uh, when I give a reading, I think I'll try a few of those longer pieces out. They, They build on the back of a longer series of poems that I wrote for Lighthead, which were uh, Pichacucha poems. The funny thing about, like, the the term is uh, it's a Japanese loan word, and so... Uh, it's like, well, and, you know, Pokemon is pocket monster. That's a Japanese long word, uh, loan word. It begins as pocket monster, but over time it sort of morphs into Pokemon. So with Pichacucha, it's picture, Pikucha, Pikucha, Pikucha. So it morphs into this, and it's rooted around picture, this this presentation oh, the format. actual word, English word picture. Yes, I that's see. right. And, okay. it, you know, the Japanese version of that is Pikucha. So it's just a presentation format. Um, that I found very compelling. You know, it's something that uh, graphic design artists and architects do. Now they do them everywhere. It's like a Pichacucha night is what they call it. Yeah, so, they do it in North Quad. Yeah, know, they, yeah. They started doing it. Right, and it's very fun because it's controlled. I mean, it, it, it speaks to, it appeals to me as an artist. You know, you have a format, you have a structure, and then you can get inside of it and just do whatever you want. You can riff. And multiple um, people have chances within the space of an evening without right. being exhausting exactly. to everyone, which exactly. is It moves great. very quickly. Yeah. So I, I participated in one, and then I thought, oh, I'm going to try this for poems. So inevitably, I went to Japan uh, a few summers ago where it started, and I met this the duo that began it, uh, a German woman and a British fellow, an architect and a graphic design artist. Huh. So the funny thing is that when I met them and we talked about it, they said, Pachachka. It's Pachachka. It's not Pichacucha. Oh, no. And then I said, well, y'all aren't Japanese. You know, I like Pichacucha. So, so that's the truth of it. Like, I still go around. And I've heard it a million different ways. But for them, it's Pachachka. But I'm like, but that completely disregards the phonetic roots of it, which are like picture. Pichacucha. Yeah. So who knows what the right way to say it. Uh, but that was very fun. I gave them a book and I told them that I was writing these poems, sort of riffing on it. Uh, and it has it, it's lend, it lended me a way to expand to get a bigger poem. But of course, the consequence of that is what I'm doing now, which is after that form, I thought, well, how much more can I do? So the longer poems I write are often sort of rooted at the core in something like the impulse of a longer poem in sections. And then I'm just trying to like undo it or, or make it more. Uh, expansive so that's how you get to really long poems and I'm just trying to uh, to figure out how to rein that in right now it's a fun thing to go back to just wanting to write every day or where my forms come from Um, they're often rooted in something like that oh here I'm going to go up tonight and I'm going to write a poem in the voice of David Bowie and I'm going to call it the Blue Bowie you know like I'm going to go and write these poems based on an interest and sometimes they do become projects sometimes they do extend Uh, But other times it's just like, that's what I did that night. So you might find one example of a kind of like project. Like an exercise. Yeah, right, right. And I don't, I don't find that. I mean, I think many writers, especially quote unquote established writers, think of that as a negative, but I would say yes is an exercise. Yes, I'm an apprentice to poetry. I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I don't, and I would hope that that would be the case. I hope that I'm 80 or 
87, the age of Jack Gilbert, who passed away recently. And I would hope, and I think that he had this quality of always a sense of like wonder yes. inside the work and not a sense of like, I have been doing this long enough to know what it is that I'm doing. So to me, that uncertainty is, uh, it's fuel, you know? So I, I, so I do, I take them as exercises. I take them as one still trying to figure out what he's doing would take them. And now, though, you also do have a sense, like you said earlier, Terrence, that, and now it is itself. Right. So you know when it's become the poem. Yeah, yeah. It, it arrives. It arrives. You know, inevitably, <laughs> yeah. the poem arrives. Sometimes <laughs> after a month, sometimes after 12 months. But, you know, inevitably, it will arrive. <sighs> let's see. Could we, could we hear something? Oh, One let's of the, see. There's maybe the pieces of a... Um, or what, were you, see. what were you thinking of reading? Uh, I don't know how, I mean, how long should the poem be. Ooh, let's see. Uh, I have no idea what I should read for you here. I, I mean, the, the, the Pichu Kucha are, are strange because they are sort of built on these sections and they all do sort of different work. So uh, there's one that's sort of Im- imitating the structure of a novel and it's sort of about Malcolm X. There's one that's riffing on art and one that's riffing on music and then one I mean this is interesting because this one in some ways is the most difficult to read but and it's the first one or the second one in the series but individually it excites me but it's the least sort of like narrative so it's 20 measures of chit chat okay. so it's just a bunch of excerpts and in fact when we were coming in from break the music that was playing was uh ghost you know from a burial so he has a piece a song called ghost hardware and so in this form in this particular poem i was like oh one of my sections is going to be called ghost hardware and then this is just what i what i wrote of the 20 sections given a soul for at the start nothing it will be all uphill heaving vapor you say daylight caked in the whip and eyelashes the voice of somebodiness wired deep in the bones a breath that makes everything green. So, so essentially, I mean, what would be interesting about this piece is our, in some ways to talk about like my titles, I was very excited in this piece about the individual titles, like the magic of magic, uh, <laughs> they're on their way there. I was excited, like there they are on, you know, the three different ways that they're, so I was like, I'm gonna put that in. So again, it was a very <laughs> local experiment. Um, I don't even know if it's the most successful of the, of the poems in this form. But for me, I mean, I've probably read it once or twice in all of the years that the book has been out. So this is a great opportunity to sort of explore what's happening in it. Uh, But again, for like that moment, sort of what I was dealing with in composing the poem to sort of push against my assumptions about the Pichacucho or what I had even done in a previous exercise, it became fun. You know, seeds in a rain stick. So there's like flirtations in this one. You know, when I pant, what now? with my big ear to the door of your body as in a cup filled with listening, pregnable, and the terrible tremble rides my whiskey vows. What your body is runs down my thickness ruinously and sweetly. So, you know, it's just like these sections that inevitably accumulate into narrative often. Though this is one where the sort of local moments were, are not intended to sort of make it be a story. You know, rules for success. Have you ever done a thing so much you learn to do it without thinking, you ask? 
And then what do you know about inaction in action? But what I hear is if at first you don't succeed, keep on sucking till you do. So, you know, it's like all these sort of like moments inside the poem that are playing around. So, but again, you know, I guess I'll say this. Um, there are poems that I don't read out all that often because I think of them not as difficult, but as sort of experiences that are more about text than ear. Uh, and the idea is to really write poems that do both. But, you know, sometimes they don't. So this is one where I definitely think overall it's a poem that has to be reread to sort of get inside the weirdness of it. Whereas others, you could just sort of hear it, you know, a few times and sort of engage in the, again, the overall structure of the poem. But that part excites you, that there's mm-hmm. like this weirdness, because that's one of its, mm-hmm. um, like the rooms or the elements sure, of it. Sure, sure. That's right. That's and so right. are there more rules within, because with the Pikachu, like, yeah. uh, did you give yourself like some sort of time That's to right. produce it? Or like whatever the images that, like, how well, how did the rules work for these? Like you played the music sure. for the one or, yeah. Right. Well, you know, the backdrop when you mention time and why this form would appeal to me is that I am fairly obsessive about time so i time everything it's the joke you know for my students is that you know okay we're going to do an exercise five minutes you have two minutes left you know 30 seconds so i do and i you know i'm never late i'm never early i'm always right on time it's <laughs> how that, do you do that because <laughs> uh, i'm always watching it vigilant you know, i always yeah. keep on, you know i wear two watches every day oh I you are I, I they both do you know analog and digital you know so i just and it is it's a joke uh, or uh, something I can't control, I should say. It's not, you know, or it's part of thing. your identity. It's like this acknowledgement of time is so critical sure. to you. Where here's the thing, though, about like what that means, something that begins when I say sort of a, a funny thing around the house for my family. But to think about like, well, is that subject? You know, is that something that I just say? I mean, in many ways, it's, it's the same thing about identity. Like where do poems about being black come from? And it's, you know, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. I am black. So it shows up in the poems. So if time becomes a thing mm. that I'm thinking about, it shows up in the poems. Right. Hence a large part, again, when you do the floors of a, of a book, not only an individual poem, a large part of it is about time. I mean, the biggest clue that I try to give everyone is in the quote that opens the book where the sense of time uh, overlaps with what fire is doing in it. So it's like, it is a fire that consumes me, but I am the fire. And that's a quote from Borges' A New Refutation of Time. So his definition of time is, it is a fire that consumes me, but I am the fire. He says, it is a, what does he say? It is a river that I am upon, but I am a river. He kind of goes through Mm. a litany of the ways that we think of as time. But, so, but fire for you is part of the lighthead. That's sure, why you choose right, this piece right, for the... Right. It is a fire. I am lighthead. You know, it is consuming me, but I am also the fire. So inevitably, uh, with the Pichacucha, what excited me was that it's not broken into like line, lines or lineation. Each section is 20 seconds. So the idea is to read a passage that takes 20 seconds to read and then the transition to the next piece. So it is trying to like really do what the actual form is. It's 20 slides, 20 seconds each. The whole presentation should take six minutes and 40 seconds, you know. And so I I sort of I was breaking the poems up in particular in the beginning and saying like, okay, is this 20 seconds? So if it takes right. too long to read a section, then it needs to be edited So you back. were, and you were, it wasn't about the writing of it. It was about the reading of it. Yeah, the, the duration. Yeah. And okay. Right. And then, you know, inevitably I sort of let that go, but it was just sort of a loose. So and then it's like, okay, that took 15 seconds. That took 25 seconds. I'll still be out of the poem in about seven minutes. It sort of okay. ultimately became my goal. But I was trying to like connect this idea of duration 
with a way of writing the poems, you know. And that's a certain kind of intensity. Sure, sure, sure. Let's take a short break. Okay. And then we're going to time it. No, we'll be uh, back. I promise uh, I it's short. Uh, okay. Living Writers today. Terrence Hayes is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be, we'll be right back. Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Terrence Hayes is here in the studio. And thanks for choosing. Thanks for doing the musical selections, ah, Terrence. Yeah, that's good music. Marvin Gaye always makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhat healed. Yeah, yeah, and healed. That's right. <laughs> and and so, Terrence, what is your... Um, we sort of uh, talked about you getting to Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and then reading so widely and absorbing i just have this uh, image of you sort of like becoming almost like in your dna all these words and phrasings Uh and from poems in the world um now i know who to call about any question Uh or any quote (laughs) i can send you to the person with the answer if i don't have the answer Uh and and so then some of the um what happened to you nick did you feel like every because we're saying that time is important so is there this sense of urgency to the writing as well where for part of your how you create is every day or do you have a a pattern to it well this becomes i guess also interesting relative to where books come from so that the book before this wind in a box was you know uh, a dark book it was very much about like uh death a sense of like so there's another of container right, yes right right the, so yeah. um a lot of the poems a lot of the poems in the i wrote six poems called wind in the box and one of them is like a will you know what will my children do when i am dead there's a a series of poems that are sort of exploring both loss but like self-elegy um because that's what i was thinking about like i you know thinking about family and before the book had been written i had almost died you know sort of kind of a freak freak illness with my oh, throat no. so you know it was it was on my mind you know and again I'm, I'm equating it with the sense of like you know listening to yourself and asking that question like is this subject matter it may be if I'm writing every day and it's what I'm thinking about yes. inevitably it does or it can shape a manuscript um, so that was the thing there but you know after I was alive after the book was written Thank and I goodness. thought oh I didn't die when the book came out you know, it became a question of time. It became a question of like, how did I get like this? Have I always been so intense with time and, and a certain kind of urgency? And I think the answer was yes, because I just always assumed that I wouldn't, you know, live into my 40s. I just sort of assumed I would be dead. So there I was. That's, you know, and mm-hmm. that in some ways, do you think that's also a... Um why, why do you think that is? Because I also mm-hmm. had had a similar feeling, sure. and I don't know why. But I, don't, I wonder. I mean, I don't think everybody has that sense. I don't think my wife ever talked about it in those terms. But it's not uncommon yeah. for like a sense of sort of maybe what we sense is just a sense of change. You know, the it is a you are really fully exiting, you know, youth in your twenties and heading towards something like middle age in the thirties. So it's hard to imagine what's on the other side. I, I assume. I don't know, but I do think it's not uncommon. Uh, for people to have a sense of that. I mean, for me, I know many of my, my peers and as an African-American just talk about like our own sense of like mortality in this world. That's tied up in it. But I would say that's even too narrow. Like, I think that that's right. 
and then some is what I would say. Uh, so, but it did. It, be, it became. You a, actually uh, had a literal brush with this. Sure, so you had yes, to face that's it, right. and then. And at that moment, when I was like in the hospital and thinking it was done, I was the the one woman I knew who was a poet that lived in the in the city that I was in at the time. I just said, "Well, you know, I, it's been good. You know, my book's done, and my children are here. I had met my father, you know, shortly before that. So I thought, you know, I, I'm actually ready. Like I didn't feel any kind of real sense of despair." You know, and then of course I, I I I survived. But at the time, I felt like to me that was very liberating to sort of not feel a sense of fear when yeah. I thought in the moment when I thought, wow, I guess this is it. You know. Yeah. So, but on the other side of that, you know, what does that look like? And it does become a question of like, well, how did I get there? And then it connects to this thing about time, whereas that was just sort of a backdrop to my moving through the world. I thought I was obsessed about time because I wasn't going to have much time. But if you've lived like that for mm-hmm. such a long time, you know, it does become. Oh something else and so part of that again as i said it's just underneath the book i don't even think it's not in the book copy on the book the biggest clue is in that a new refutation of time in that quote and so it's me thinking about it as a source for writing poems but it doesn't have to be the subject in a way that it might be in an essay you know Mm -hmm. what i mean i don't know if it would be in a novel in the same way but it just becomes something that's again underneath it that moves uh, a certain kind of tone or a certain kind of feeling through the poems. So do you think that you, um, is any part of the urgency writing every day, Terrence, or is that something that now, you know, the, the, um, the poems will come, well, the book will shape, right? Or, well, you do have to be, you know, you have to be ready for it. The light does have to be on for the muse to find the porch. So yes, <laughs> I do write every day, but again, you know, it, I've done it for so long. I don't, well, everybody that knows me thinks of me as a, as a, disciplined person a disciplined artist I think of myself as a obsessive artist so that just means that I you know I do write every day but I almost feel like it's not in my control like it's not like I uh, it just happens it's just something that I've done for so long you know that now it's just like well this is what I have to do this is what I do it's a part of my day I eat every day I wash every day I write every day and so it becomes a kind of like obsessiveness more than uh, a sense of discipline from my perspective. Of course, if you don't know like what's in my head, you just say, wow, he's so disciplined. He goes up, he works every day. This is what my, you know, my wife who's lived with me for 15 years says that, but I say, oh, it never feels like that. I feel pulled up there more than like sort of going up on my own, you know, so. And that, and she's a poet too. So yes. is she, but she maybe doesn't experience it quite the same way or, or, maybe goes rather than is pulled right well you know she prefers the day she writes uh during the daytime she also writes in other genres so maybe that has something to do with it so for us when we got a family uh it was a big challenge for her so now you know she'll go away she'll go to retreats i've never really done retreats uh in fact i mean the way we met was at a retreat uh kave Kanam, which was funded by toy derricott but, you know, I wasn't there as a writer. She was there as a writer and everyone else was there. I was there uh, sort of as a gopher. I had been Toy's graduate assistant, you know, just coincidentally when she started the organization. So it meant that so I So you was, were there at the very beginning. I was there at the very, very beginning. And I was making copies and running and around. I, I making copies, print, yeah, print. Yes. <laughs> but I never was uh, working there. And I've never felt like the need to go to a space and write. But there my wife was, at the time she was just a, a great poet. She wasn't my wife at the time. But there she was. And so she's always needed a space 
you know, or, or enjoyed a kind of space like that for writing. I've never felt like I could do that. I've always felt like, well, you know, I write at night. Everybody's asleep. The world feels like it's, you know, open and it's just me in it. And I usually, you know, I'll go up around 1030 or so and then I'll write to around 130 or two. That would be sort of my typical period of just waiting to see what's going to happen. Uh, but for her, you know, as a person who writes during the day, obviously there's things that have to be sorted, including me, moved around. You know, <laughs> since I don't write during the day, I'm like, hey, what are we going to do now? And she's like, oh, I think I'm working on something. And I'm thinking, really? What am I going to do? You know, so it becomes a challenge. But we've uh, we figured it out over time. And are you able to turn your mind off in a certain way to go to sleep, Terrence? Because um, you've maybe right. maybe because it's. If, if it is a compulsion of some sort, sure. so you're pulled up there, and then right. in a way, if you know that you've released it sure. or so, like you've accomplished what right. you... Right. Yeah, I do. I, do. I mean, I, I, I do fall asleep. Occasionally when I'm... I mean, if I really get into a poem, and this is this only happens a few times a year, the great thing about the night is that, it, you know, in some ways it's endless. Like you have the, more time. Yes, <laughs> yes. So if that means staying up to four, I'll do it, and I'll just have to suffer through the next day. You know, I do like a siesta. I love a nap. So... I have to have my nap. And that's what can get me late into the day. And it's usually like 15 minutes every day. Mm-hmm. I try to get a nap. But um, the great thing about that is if I if I can't go to sleep, I don't go to sleep. I just work. But right, when I feel like I've done what I needed to do, I, I am tired and I... I, I fall asleep. You can but, turn them. And right. and the the teaching with your and with your students, does it mm. feel like it's not coming out that same energy source? It's not the same um, for the writing because you've right. got it at night, like sure. you've got or. Right. Well, yeah, it is different. I mean, if I say that I continue to really uh, want to be the person who's read everything, teaching is ideal for that. So I rarely will teach like the same set of books. I was talking to a student uh, earlier about that, partly because if I know what's going to happen or if I have an answer about a poem, I will give it. I don't wait. So (laughs) the only way that I can fix that is to not know. So I still read a lot. I'm always looking for great things to teach and I try to teach new things. Um, so that it's just a surprise, you know, it's a surprise for me and it's a surprise for my students when we finally come to, to talk about the work. Uh, so they feel very different, but teaching becomes a place to deal with all of the stuff that I'm taking in, all of the work that I'm reading, all of the questions that I have when I'm reading it. You know, the classroom becomes a great place to sort of knock those things around, especially when I, when I don't know. So, and you know, depending on the student, a student that's very hyper about knowledge they could be frustrated. Uncomfortable. Yes. Oh, I just, I don't want to answer. I just want a conversation. But that is essentially what drives me in terms of like teaching, just like to have these conversations with people who have, you know, questions, curiosities. I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this surprise too, that seems to be drive that, um, with the long poem, was that something that now that you're working on, that's the current, like the surprise for that? Like, how can it be, Hold hold itself yeah. together with um, intensity, right? Perhaps, or because I just yeah yeah. How can it be organized? Inevitably, I, again, what I love about the current you know poem is just dumping things down into the shape, so it becomes like a, a warehouse. And you know, at some point, you're gonna have to organize everything. But I'm trying to organize it while pulling more stuff into it. So you know, that is a it's a frustration and it seems uh, overwhelming. But I actually don't mind that. I don't mind the sense of frustration. Like my, I guess my sense of struggle is like, well, it's inevitable. And sometimes things get made in it. So I say that even without believing that this thing that I'm working on will ever be done. But I think that about everything 
you know, when I'm in the throes of it, like, oh, this thing, man, I can't, I'm not ever going to figure this one out. You know, it's a series of failures. But I, I accept that. I mean, because sometimes you don't figure it out, and that's okay. You know, you just say there's something in there that was valuable or the experience was valuable, as opposed to, like, sort of being hyper-focused on the sense of product. So, so that keeps me busy, like that sense of what's going to happen with this thing. Will it finish? Will it happen? That sends me up. That makes me work. Uh, and then sometimes it does. It does suddenly work. And I say, oh, that's what I was doing. So, uh, I mean, I, I have like, I was thinking of a very particular example of a poem that maybe I mentioned uh, earlier. It is the poem where I had written it. Uh, I had been working on a bunch of poems and then I was sending them to press, uh, to a to a magazine, and I wanted to have a a fifth poem. I just thought, you know, again, it's just craziness. Like, I have five <laughs> to feel poems. like it should be yeah. five for this. So group. I took a bunch of failed poems that I'd been sort of messing around with, and I put them together. Patchwork quilt. Yes, and then I sent it, and uh, that was the poem that the they chose magazine. Well, they chose them all, oh, but they, they wanted oh, oh, they wanted to record that one, and they wanted to talk about that one. And I couldn't talk about it because I hadn't really written it. I had just sort of put it together and sent it. But it also meant because I put it together that way, my wife had never seen it. So when, the, came, when the time, well, it was the same poem. Oh, it was the same. It, it was oh. this poem. So when the time came to oh. talk about it, I was like, uh, I should, uh, you know, explain it to you because it's a bizarre poem. It is the Cocktails with Orpheus poem. Should I read it? Yeah, it would be great. Cocktails with Orpheus. After Dark. The bar full of women, part of me loves. The part that stood naked outside the window of Miss Geneva, recent divorcee who owned a gun. Oh, Miss Geneva, where are you now? Orpheus says she did not perish. She was not turned to ash in the brutal light. She found a good job. She made good money. She had her own insurance and a house. She was a decent wife. I know decent lives in the word descent. The bar noise makes a kind of silence. When Orpheus hands me his sunglasses, I see how fire changes everything. In the mind, I am behind a woman whose skirt is hiked above her hips, as bound as touch permits, saying, don't forget me when I become the liquid out of which names are born. Salt milk, milk sweet, and animal made. I want to be human above the body, uprooted and right, a fold of please released, but I am a black wound, what's left of the deed. So I couldn't explain it. I mean, I had organized it around, it's a sonnet, and so I'd organized it around like words that ended with D. So it stood, owned, did, found, and word, hands, mind, bound, liquid, made, fold, deed. But Beyond that, I didn't. I couldn't explain it. I knew there was something sexual in it, so, and my wife was cool. She was like, "Oh, that's a good poem. It's okay, you know." So the, the fears were uh, unnecessary. But I just was like, "I can't explain it. I just uh, I made it off of these, you know, failed poems, and this is what emerged." And I liked the poem for that reason. I mm -hmm. liked that I'm still never quite sure what it's happening in it or where it came from. That that surprises me, and I, I like that feeling. Terrence Hayes, thank you so much for Welcome. being here today. And um, uh, that that was, um, you just heard a poem from Lighthead. We've also been talking about the, the collection Wind in a Box. Terrence Hayes, mm -hmm. thanks for listening out there, everyone. Thanks to Gus for engineering. Many thanks thank to you. Terrence Hayes fun. for being here. Um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, November 28, 2012 in Los Angeles. I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, as the federal government opens up more deepwater drilling licenses in the Gulf of Mexico, the EPA suspends new contracts with oil giant BP, citing the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster. Protesters rally in Detroit and Washington, D.C., calling on GM to address injured workers at its plant in Colombia. And LGBT activists in Russia raise concerns over anti-gay laws and proposals in the country. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. As the political showdown over the so-called fiscal cliff continues in Washington, labor and human rights leaders are in the Capitol today telling Congress to leave the Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid programs off the chopping block. Steve Weiss is a Medicare and Medicaid recipient from Oregon. We're going to see what the president is made of because he's got to make some decisions here. I'd say the Democrats have a mandate in Congress to do the right thing and take the high road and do what's fair and equitable and, I might add, compassionate. President Obama addressed the issue in a speech today surrounded by middle-class Americans. I'm asking Americans all across the country to make your voice heard. Tell members of Congress what a $2,000 tax hike would mean to you. The remarks are part of a larger campaign by the White House to rally broad support for the president's plan to extend middle-class tax cuts and increase taxes on the top 2%. Republicans are challenging efforts to tax the rich, and little progress has been made. Six women from Massachusetts were convicted today of trespassing during a protest at the Vermont.